We spent the last three Sundays in Romans 14, now we're into Romans 15. The last four Sundays, or last three Sundays, this being the fourth, we're still kind of talking about permissible differences, but we've really covered it more or less, all we're going to say about the last three Sundays. Permissible differences are matters the Bible doesn't decide for us. And we talked about how we have to, in the interests of loving one another, which the Bible has decided for us, how we have to not let our permissible differences become a kind of identity politics in the church. We're to hold to what's in the center where Christ is Lord and practice goodwill and grace on the peripheries. If we hold to what's in the center and practice goodwill on the peripheries, then, then we're keying uh, on our hope, and we have a, a better than not chance of being in harmony. And that's our focus today in these 13 verses, hope and harmony, if you like to summarize uh, everything that's here in a long passage. Our default is we want to please ourselves. Chapter 14, not just chapter 14, really all of Romans has established this doctrinally, but then practically, as you get into the practical part of the book, not that doctrine isn't practical, you understand, but as uh, what we're to do with this doctrine, practically we also see that our default is we want to please ourselves. How do you get harmony uh, out of people for whom this is our default? We want to please ourselves. Not just that we're sometimes self-absorbed, it's not just that we're sometimes self-pitying. It is that we, we, we want to please ourselves. Thinking about this in the context of harmony, I was watching an old episode of, uh, well, all of them are old now, The Andy Griffith Show. Uh, I think basically everybody but Ronnie Howard is, uh, is, is gone. And this was uh, one in which uh, I think we were on vacation. Uh, the kids will remember we were uh, watching this. Uh, not too long ago on vacation together. It was uh, an episode in which uh, Barney entered a singing competition in which he had no chance of, of winning because everyone except Barney knew he couldn't sing. And, the, and if you uh, followed that program through uh, its run in the 60s, you can watch it on in almost uh, so many channels, uh, rerun it. In fact, you can look at you can watch it on Netflix. Kids who haven't seen the Andy Griffith Show, go go watch a couple episodes of it on Netflix and and see what your parents and grandparents enjoyed. But the producers uh, that became a trope, as it's called, in the show. Uh, they they came back to it in subsequent episodes again and again and again for laughs. Barney can't sing. And one of my favorite episodes that has to do with Barney Can't Sing, uh, Andy goes so far as to tell Barney the microphone that he is using is so incredibly sensitive that he gets Barney down to singing in a whisper <laughs> so that nobody will have to suffer through how out of tune the man was. The premise informing all this instruction from chapter 14 now into chapter 15 here is even though we're redeemed, we still have this default setting. We still want to please ourselves. We think we're the ones in tune and everybody else is, uh, is off. And we know this not only from personal experience, this is also the record of Scripture. As Buddy read the passage to us, you've got a lot of Old Testament quotations here, but you've got verse 4 telling us directly whatever was written in former days, and he's talking about the, the Old Testament Verse 4, everything written in the past, written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so the personal experience, not just our own personal experience, teaches us something about uh, our, our, our desire to please ourselves and how this is our default, but the personal experiences of those who've gone before us with God, Paul draws upon in this passage to say, look, uh, there's things to learn from those who, who went before us. There's things to learn about harmony and there's things to learn about hope. What kind of hope? Verse 4, whatever was written in former days, written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. But what kind of hope are we talking about? Because often when we use the word hope, we talk about it in sort of a sense of hope so. I, you know, I, I hope my favorite team has a better year this year. Uh, I, I hope that um, what I, I see happening in crisis situations to others uh, doesn't happen to me, etc. and so on. Uh, what, what kind of hope are we talking about here in the emphasis of this passage? And the kind of hope we're talking about is the kind of hope that keeps preaching to us that though we are as we are in our default, committed to pleasing ourselves, we get in Jesus someone who did not go there himself and yet is committed to we who do, which is a marvelous thing to think about. I love how Calvin Miller in his old allegory, The Singer, it was written in the 70s, um, so I've moved from the 60s now to the 70s in this message. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the uh, current era maybe. But Calvin Miller wrote an allegory called The Singer in which um, he pictures Jesus uh, as, as interacting with people as a singer uh, and one who uh, heals through his melodies. And in the story, it's interesting how the singer encounters people in, in different places in life and he encounters a miller uh, from, a, from a farm. And the miller's uh, hand was uh, deformed due to a, a farming accident he had suffered years before. And the, and the singer offers to heal him with one of his melodies. He says, let me sing over you and your hand will be well. And the miller refuses. More than that, he actually chases the singer off because... He thinks the singer is actually trying to make things worse by calling attention to his deformed hand. And so he is so self-absorbed, so self, full of self-pity, he can't recognize the healing agent in front of him. Scripture, what was written in former days, this language here in verse 4, Scripture teaches everyone born into this world that we have a self-pleasing default, which means that we tend to key on the wrong things at times, and get out of key other times with one another. So I want to do with you this morning is put these 13 verses before us under two headings. We'll go with hope and harmony, the name of uh, the, the sermon as well. And both hope and harmony we need and both emerge from as headings, hope and harmony. We'll go with harmony first, but these both emerge as headings from each of the benediction statements. We have two one is in two verses, five and six, and the other is in verse 13. These may the God statements, may the God of endurance and encouragement, verse five, on into verse six, may the God of hope, verse 13. Benediction means good word. These are benediction statements. Benediction doesn't mean the end of the service. It means the good word. It means something that's well said. It's the conveyance of blessing and well-being from God. That's what a benediction is. So when you get statements in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, you've got the famous one in the Old Testament, 
um, uh, uh, in the Hebrew blessing, the high priestly blessing, but in the New Testament, you get these, they're offset by may. May God do this for you. And so in verses five and six, we've got an emphasis on harmony. And then in verse 13, we get the emphasis on hope, and these are our headings. So first, harmony. Look again at verses five and six. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this one voice, with one voice we can chant something. With one voice we've already recited scripture in this service together. We can read responsively in one voice. But what do you think the one voice is meant to sound like? What, is it, what does it bring to mind in a context of relational integrity? It brings to mind song, the one voice of singing together. We glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the benediction concludes there in verse 6. Typically, we do this through song. And the categories of song given to us in Scripture, Colossians 3 I'm thinking of, are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which requires a community chorus. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are variety. The variety of the people of God holding to what's in the center and practicing goodwill on the peripheries. We even, the Bible even uh, in Colossians 3 there says that we teach and admonish one another when we sing. Many of you have heard C.S. Lewis's depiction of praise as inner health made audible. Have you heard that? Lewis said, praise is inner health made audible. And so too with this one voice, the harmony of the church that's practicing relational integrity, holding to what's in the center, practicing grace and goodwill out on the peripheries. How do we make the inner health of a church audible? A healthy church cannot be full of factions and bitterness. In fact, the scripture warns us over in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 around verse 15, I think, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root springs up to cause trouble and defile many. How do we make the inner health of the church audible? If there's health on the whole in a church, it means the parts aren't mired in marginal matters or personality conflicts. Now, there are always things to work through in a church. It's a, it's a community of, of disparate people coming from different backgrounds, things that have formed and shaped us. Person X likes this particular Bible teacher, person Y can't stand them, person Z doesn't have an opinion, etc. and so on. There's always things to work through in a church. It's like I tell engaged couples when we're going through the, the premarital counseling process, I tell them, Taylor tells them the same thing, expect, expect some conflict, even in a healthy marriage. And so too in the church, there are times conflicts arise over important matters, doctrinal matters, uh, directional matters, even what constitutes a marginal matter can be a point of conflict because, you know, one person's marginal matters, another's fundamental issue. So that's a, that's, and sometimes when there's conflict, it feels like a clamor. It feels dissonant. 
our God sings, and we need him to sing. He's a melody maker, and he, and he heals through his melodies. Many of you love, as I do, the concluding words of the prophet uh, Zephaniah. If you know Zephaniah, it's probably the only thing you know about him, is that at the very end of his prophecy, we get those words about how the Lord exalts over us with loud singing. Why does he? Because of what God is accomplishing through Christ in the world. Look at what God made possible in and through Jesus, not pleasing himself. Verse 3, Christ did not please himself. And what comes out of that is Jews and Gentiles together in the church, which was the first century way of thinking about it. What's down in verses 8 through 12, if you're looking at the passage, is really Romans in Cliff's notes. What is God's great work in the, church, in the world? It is to, to build his church. Look, look down at verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles, everybody else, might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then you get these Old Testament quotations. Remember verse 4, we're talking about that which happened in the past is for our instruction. And so he draws upon the past in verse 3, again in verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. Just looking now at verses 9 through 12, if your, your eyes will set there for a moment in the text, you've got, um, you've got four Old Testament references. And they show that while God started with Israel... He always had Gentiles in the liner notes. He, he brought us, uh, most, I would imagine most all of us in the room are Gentile of some stripe, and he brought us in on his mercies. Though we thought, some of us thought like the Miller in the story I mentioned earlier, and some of us think like Barney and Mayberry, we think either we're in tune already and we, and we therefore don't really need Jesus to do anything for us, or we think Jesus will make things worse for us because all Jesus wants to do is keep us mindful of our sin. Because some of us grew up in churches that presented a hard God, hard to know, who just wants to hang your sin over you and never give you any relief. And if you step out of line, man, he's going to nail you. But looking at verses 9 through 12 now, four Old Testament references, one per verse. You see it? Verse 9, an Old Testament reference. Verse 10, an Old Testament reference. Verse 11 and verse 12. It's, like you've, it's almost like you've got the four corners of the Old Testament here all called upon to reinforce a central truth. Because what we've got, looking at verses 9 through 12 now, is you've got a reference from Old Testament history. Then you've got a reference from Old Testament law. Then you've got a reference from Old Testament wisdom, the Psalms. Then you've got a, re a reference from the Old Testament prophets. We even have mention of the patriarchs back in verse 8. What is Paul doing? He's picking up something from almost every genre of the Old Testament, the four corners of the Old Testament, if you will, to tell us that among the things we learn from what was written in former days, as he puts it in verse 4, among the things we learn is that God has been about reharmonizing his out-of-tune creation for a long time 
taking the greater burden on himself to do it, but writing the soundtrack into the church. In other words, if you want to hear the music of God in the world, you come to the church. And I don't mean the the music of a service, though that's important to us. But I mean the music of the harmony of people who have nothing in common, people who are quite different, people who maybe have even been opposed and have all this animosity between them. I'd say it's, it's a very interesting thing if you ever uh, get to do so. I've been to the Middle East a, a few times, and I remember a trip to Egypt and talking to Egyptian pastors there, and they talking about how difficult it is teaching uh, uh, Arabs and, and Egyptians who are Christians uh, about Israel in the, in, in the Scriptures. What a difficult thing that is because their entire political apparatus says Israel must not exist. And how the... the Arab pastors are are having to to try to bridge that divide of of recognizing that that God's grace that reaches the the Arab began with the Jews. It's a a difficult thing, not impossible, but it requires a lot of pastoral care as as they pick through that. The soundtrack is in the church. We have the score of God. The music, he, he sets his redemption of the world to uh, a symphony with, with all these instruments. When you watch a symphony, it's, it's, it's consonance and dissonance both, but it's all, it's working. It works. Again, verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And those promises were expansive. And in order that the Gentiles, verse 9, might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That should be discordant. (laughs) But as it is written, I will sing to your name. I will praise you among the Gentiles. We've got an example of core truth that we hold right here in verses 8 and 9, don't we? What's the core truth? God is merciful. What happens on the peripheries of that core truth? That core truth, God is merciful. What happens on the peripheries is we can argue the sequencing of how someone gets in on mercy, how someone comes to faith, whether we make a choice for God on our own free will or uh, we're utterly dependent on God to make that choice essentially for us and and to override our unbelief. We can argue that and both sides still love the Lord But what we don't argue in the core is that he initiates mercy because he is merciful. Look again at verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. May God do this for us and in us and through us. He doesn't just point us to what he wants us to do. He gives us the resources. He enables us. He gives us the power. May God, the God of endurance and encouragement, verse 5, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and good practices mutually edifying come from good words. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And welcome, we've talked about already in the context of chapter 14. 
how it's not just greeting, it's inclusion that seeks to close distances, to not, to not let things wall up between us as much as it depends on us. As much as it depends on me, I've got to try to keep my judgment of you on a permissible matter that I'm on the other side of. I've got to keep that to a minimum for sake of harmony so that the body, not just thinking of myself and what I like and want and want to hear and don't hear and want to sing and don't sing, etc. and so on, so that the body has a chance to flourish. I'm not the center of God's world. He's not in the habit of seeking me out for counsel. And so there's these permissible differences where we, we all have our little location out on the periphery. And in a church as, as, as wide as ours, that's a lot of points on the periphery. And so what we do is, is we keep our judgment of one another on permissible matters to a minimum for sake of harmony. For sake of our fellowship having a chance to flourish as we key on what's in the center of our faith and not require of one another, though we might debate it and, and have little discussions here and there, we don't require of one another perfect alignment out on the peripheries in order to be friends in Christ. If we center ourselves around how God brings glory to himself through the, the mercies, his mercies abounding in the gospel, if we bask in, in the beauty of his kindness and grace to us, it's only then that you pick up the responsibility to run and pursue the kind of relational integrity that puts the church before tribe. And you know, when we do that, life in the body of Christ, it gets a lot better. It goes a lot better. It's more enjoyable. It's more peaceful. Speaking of, let's think about our second heading now, hope. Look down at verse 13, the second benediction in the passage, the second good word or, or well-speaking. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, not just have it as if it's a thing to admire, <clears throat> but to abound in it. Now, looking from verse 13, look back up the passage in pursuit of what is, again, this, this hope that we abound in. Look back up at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, verse 3, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As it is written, and then most Bibles will have the rest in quotation marks, it's from the Old Testament. It's actually a Davidic psalm. It's Psalm 69, he's quoting there in verse 3, and since verse 4 says, we're trying to learn from whatever was written in former days, like here in verse 3, Psalm 69, that being a Davidic psalm, let's isolate King David in this consideration on how hope works. I mentioned our default is to please ourselves, and in fact, any one of us when we square up with that, we can feel quite hopeless about this because it can feel like our sin is just always going to get in the way of everything. But as I was saying earlier, we know how this goes, not just from personal experience, we also know it from the testimony of Scripture. And take as an exhibit A here, David. Paul quotes David's words in verse 3. David is the second king of Israel. 
He's the one whose line through whom we get Jesus. Verse 3 has this Davidic psalm. Verse 4, again, says everything written in the past, written to teach us. This includes David's life, David's music. So who's David? What relevance does David have to your life? He was certainly a key figure. We see that. But did that guy ever default to pleasing himself? (laughs) The Bathsheba affair comes immediately to mind for most of us. And yet God said of David that he was a man after his own heart, which is a statement on David's hope that he'd pinned everything. David had pinned everything on who God promised to be for him, and thus he would not give himself to uh, idle allegiance. Oh, but the idols of our hearts are many. And so we think of that Bathsheba affair as a low point for David when, when he went after pleasing himself. And we remember how Nathan, remember the story? You know this story, it's so familiar. Nathan, the prophet, is the one who God sends to confront David about not just the affair with Bathsheba, but that he robbed another man of his wife and got that man, Uriah, killed. And Nathan comes into David's chamber and he says, "Uh, I want to tell you about something that's going on in your kingdom. And he tells him this little story about a poor man having one lamb, that this, this man treated this lamb like a pet. And, and, and his neighbor is a rich man, and the, and the rich man has more sheep than he can count. And when guests come, the rich man goes and he takes the poor man's little lamb and slaughters it to feed his guests with. And the text says David burned with anger when he heard Nathan's story, and he said, That man should die. I won't have anybody like that in my kingdom. And Nathan said, But you're the man. That's what you did to Uriah in taking his wife. And if we went back and we read the text for our instruction back in 2 Samuel chapter 10, the text of that confrontation, we'd find God through Nathan saying these words to David, you have despised me, the man after his own heart. You have utterly scorned me. That sounds kind of hopeless, doesn't it? How did David despise and scorn the Lord? It wasn't just his unrighteousness with Bathsheba and Uriah, but his self-righteousness too on display before the prophet Nathan. David acting like he'd never been guilty of something as self-absorbed as he was hearing about. He'd been guilty of that on a much greater scale. You have despised me, God says to David through Nathan. This was written in former days. Romans 15.4 says... Written for our instruction. How so? What's our takeaway? Don't have an affair? Don't commit murder? Okay. Is there anything else? Don't we also learn what to do from that story when we're facing our own hopelessness? You have despised me. You have utterly scorned the Lord. These are hopeless statements. What could you do in the face of God saying that to you? You turn to the promise of God on your behalf or of a redeemer. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The author of those words ended up himself guilty of the same thing. How like us. How then could David or you or I ever even dare to abound in hope? Because David was made a promise by God of an heir an eternal reign. Jesus would retroactively be David's redeemer also. It's a hard story back there. Do you know the death penalty that David pronounced when he heard Nathan's story? He's pronouncing it unwittingly against himself. Death to one who does that. That wasn't going to happen to him, though he probably wished it would because someone else was going to pay for David's sin. Someone else who didn't deserve to pay would pay for David's unrighteousness and self-righteousness both. And it ended up being that child. David's son that Bathsheba carried, this was before Solomon. And if we struggle with God not allowing David's innocent baby boy to live because of David's sin, wait a minute, wait a minute. Shouldn't we then have a problem with God allowing his own innocent son to die for your sin and mine? The reality of sin committed is that someone has to pay for it because in every sin we're telling God, your design doesn't work for me. Your declared will doesn't fit my life and relationships. I don't want to be in your image and likeness. I didn't ask for this. Guess what? The Bible is full of that from us to God. We're just like our forebears, only more so. But the Bible is also full of the opposite from God to us. Whatever was written in former days, written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In that, we learn to tie our hope to what God has promised to be for us in Jesus. Jesus who would not please himself, but would arrive in David's line And do what kings do, save their subjects. Cancel the tyranny sin holds over us. Unrighteous sin that keeps us out of fellowship with one another and self-righteous sin that complicates our fellowship with one another. The work of Jesus on our behalf, that's what fills us with joy and peace in believing. Verse 13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. I want my performance to be good. As a Christian, making my way through life, my call it a performance, just my my Christian walk, my life belongs to Christ. I want to do it right and well, but I know His performance is better. And I learned a key on that. Not to give myself an excuse. Grace doesn't, grace doesn't lead us to, to profligacy. Grace doesn't, doesn't cause us to think we can do whatever we want to do. That, that's a, that's a, a form of grace that is not from Christ. Nobody in the body of Christ can ever do enough to ultimately please you and ignite your joy except for Jesus. That's where we anchor our hope. And far from making us averse to one another... That's the very thing that keeps bringing us back to one another. I think most of our Christian life is spent learning to believe that God is really better than I know. 
and applying that truth to myself and applying it to everyone else. Let's pray together. And then we're going to hear the choir teach us through song. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have not just shared with us, you've shown us. The word became flesh. And we thank you, Lord, for what was written in the past, preparing the way for him. Everything in our Bible now is in the past. We're 2,000 years down the way from when the New Testament was written. And Lord, we are still those who are anticipating that the, uh, the chapters really aren't finished. They're still your return. And though it won't really be written about as your first advent, your second is what we eagerly anticipate. Not because we want to escape, not because we're anxious, but we're eager. And we want to be awake and aware of what you're doing in this world and why you brought us in on it. Lord, don't let us miss it. Help us to believe truly that you are better than we know and to apply that truth to ourselves and to each other for your glory so that you are beautified in this place by this church and its testimony in public, but also interpersonally as we relate to one another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.